0: Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Uh, we're going to take a, a pause in our study of the book of Exodus that we've been looking through this entire year. And for the next few weeks, we're going to look at an Advent series uh, as we focus on what we've already mentioned, that, that word Advent, coming. We, we remember the coming of our Lord, and, and we look forward to the second coming of our Lord. And we're going to do that uh, by looking at the Scripture in regards to John the Baptist. Uh, Throughout salvation history, God used different prophets and priests and kings to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah. And what we see in the opening pages of the Gospel of Luke is how God used John the Baptist, how God used his parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, to prepare for the coming of Jesus. And so today we're going to look at Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. And in a moment I'm going to read that, but before I do, I just want to remind us of something. Uh, Whenever I read the Scripture, I ask that we stand out of reverence for God's Word. I know we do a lot of standing and sitting, and it's not just because we want you to exercise this morning. Uh, We have you stand when we read the Scripture as an acknowledgment that this is not man's Word. This is the Word of God. God has preserved this Word throughout generations. God has handed this Word down to us today. It is a sacred text. And God is still speaking to us through it. And so, out of reverence for God's Word this morning, if you're able to, would you join me and stand as we read from this sacred text, the Gospel according to Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. And this is what God says through the inspiration of His Spirit as Luke writes these words. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zacharias, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when the time of his service was ended, he went to his home. After these days his wife Elizabeth conceived... And for, four, or for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when He looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. If you would, pray with me. Father, we pray that You would use this sacred word in our lives today that we might more clearly see and respond to the gospel of Jesus. We ask this in His name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Christmas is now upon us. We are in this Advent season and in this Christmas season. It's one that, that not only we recognize in the church, our, our culture for more commercial reasons has been recognizing it for some weeks now. And so you've probably heard as you've walked into the store those familiar carols playing over the intercom systems. And one of those songs that plays often during this time of year is the 12 days of Christmas. I always find it interesting, and I've shared before, about how PNC Bank, each year, they take those 12 days of Christmas and they find out what the actual price of those items would be today if you were to buy them. It's kind of a fun way they measure the economy And so, uh, in case you're looking to give the true love of the 12 days of Christmas this year, uh, you're going to pay a little bit more than last year. The cost is now $34,558.65. So, if you didn't get all your shopping done on Black Friday, there's a few things you can get. Of course, it starts with a partridge in a pear tree. Uh, The price of that's gone up this year a little bit. It's now $220.00 for a partridge in a pear tree. Uh, Two turtle doves, though, were still the same price as last year, about $375. Uh, The most expensive gift is still the seven swans of swimming. I assume it's difficult to train those swans to swim in synchronization maybe, but it's $13,000 for that. And uh, for all you dairy farmers, I'm sure you understand that the most inexpensive gift is those eight maids of milking. Uh, They are still a bargain price, Terry. Uh, Apparently that price hasn't changed since 2009, so uh, that is the cheapest item on the list. Uh, I always look at this list, and as I do, I think, you know, looking back, it's not hard to gauge these things. I mean, we can look back and see how much something used to cost, how much something costs now. Uh, Looking ahead is a little bit more difficult, isn't it? There are all kinds of people who try to time-stop markets. There's all kinds of people who try to predict things to come. Uh, But we know looking ahead isn't such an exact science. Uh, We don't know what tomorrow holds. But we're reminded when we come to the Word of God that there is one who can perfectly look back and perfectly look ahead. And it's our sovereign God and Creator. And it's not just that God can look at a distance at these things. No, God is involved in the work of the universe. He is involved in the lives of His people. And He has a plan. And we can see in God's Word how that plan has unfolded in salvation history. And we can see in God's Word what is to come in that plan in the future. But there are times that as we are living in that plan, living in the already and the not yet, where we can drift. That there's times when we can begin to wonder. There's times when we can begin to worry when things don't quite work like we think they're supposed to. When things don't play out like we think they would. When the things that we anticipated don't come to fruition And we find ourselves in situations and circumstances that we did not plan for. And it's in those times that we're reminded that this is the way it's always been for God's people. From the beginning of the Scripture until the end, we never see a picture of God being in a hurry. And we come to Luke chapter 1 at a time where there had actually been a period of silence here from God between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, we call those the years of silence because there's about 400 years that take place there where God speaks through no prophet, where God doesn't give any additional word to His people. They were 400 years of silence. And then God speaks. And we would think perhaps that that the first word he would speak would be about the coming of his son. But as you see in this passage, the first word that he speaks is about a coming of one who would prepare the way for his son. After 400 years of silence, God speaks to Zachariah. And he tells him about a child who will come, who will be great before the Lord. He tells them about a child who would turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He tells them about a child who would make ready for the Lord a people prepared. A child who would be the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. And so as we consider this text today and the events that take place here in Luke chapter 1 verses 5 through 25, I want us to consider some things we learn here about God's timing. It's important that we think about that phrase, God's timing. Because we are a people who desperately like to be in control. We are a people who have a schedule we like to keep to. We have a plan that we've made that we want to make sure it works out. And so often in our plans and in our schedule along the way, we will invite God into our plans. But what we see in the Scripture is that what's principle is the plan of God. And it is God who is inviting you and I this morning into His plan. But to understand that, we need to learn a bit about God's timing. And we'll do that as we walk through this passage, beginning with the first point there in your outline. We find here a reminder that God fulfills His promises in His timing, not ours. God fulfills His promises in His timing, not ours. And so you remember, there was a promise that God made all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. God had created the garden. He had created the sanctuary. He had put Adam and Eve in the garden. They had perfect fellowship with Him there. But then they sinned against God. That they rebelled against their Creator. And so God removed them from the garden. He gave them a consequence for their sin. But when He did that, He made them a promise. He promised them that a Redeemer would come. He promised them that a Messiah would come. One who would crush the head of the serpent. He spoke then about the coming of Jesus Christ and said, the Messiah indeed would come. But then thousands of years go by. And along that time, there were many people that God raised up that perhaps for a time, the people may have thought, well, maybe this is going to be the Messiah. That there was Abraham, Father Abraham, that great man of faith, the one who was chosen to be the father of many nations. Perhaps some looked to Abraham and thought, well, maybe he'll be the one who redeems us. And yet we know Abraham had his problems Abraham, out of fear for his own life, lied and said that his wife was really his sister so that the Pharaoh wouldn't take his life in order to take his wife. The Pharaoh takes then uh, Abraham's wife into his household, and it would seem then that the entire plan of God is now jeopardized. But God was sovereign. He worked those things out. But we see there, Abraham, like you and I, was a sinner. He couldn't be the Messiah. And then God would raise up others. As we've been studying Exodus, we've been studying Moses. Here's a man who God used to deliver his people out of hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt, to lead them through the waters of the Red Sea towards the promised land. Perhaps this would be, indeed the deliverer, the Messiah that God had long ago promised. And yet we see Moses' flaws, don't we? He was a man who was a murderer. Here was a man who, when God called him to go and to, to herald his message to Pharaoh, who said, well, I, I don't know if I can do that, who struggled to have faith. No, Moses couldn't be the Messiah. Moses was sinful and so was everyone else. Even when we get to King David, a man who the Scripture says was a man after God's own heart. A man who stood there before the giant, before the enemies of God. And in that that picture of our Messiah, our Christ, uh, salvation is won for a people by one man. And yet he would turn out to be an adulterer and a murderer. And so all along the way, century after century, God would raise up people that perhaps the people would cry out and say, well, maybe this will be our Redeemer. Maybe this will be our Messiah. And yet time and time again, they would all fall short. And then there'd be silence. Then there'd be no messengers. There'd be no prophets. There'd be no new words from God. There'd be 400 years between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. And certainly during that time, there would be people who would struggle. There would be people who'd be tempted to, to, to throw in the towel. But then there'd be others like we find in our text today, like Zechariah and Elizabeth. Notice what Luke tells us there in verse 6. He said they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. He tells us that they had no child, that they were barren. And so that gives us a little insight to their life. You see, in Zechariah and Elizabeth's day, barrenness was seen, seen almost like a curse if someone was barren, if a couple could not have child, that they were assumed then by the masses to have lost favor before God. That they were looked to, not that they had some type of medical issue or, or, or physiological issue, they were looked at by the people as sinners. They were looked at at the people as those who God was judging by not allowing them to have a child. And so for them, that their daily activity would be a reminder of this. You can imagine Zachariah there in the company of hundreds of priests as he was preparing to serve in the temple. Perhaps as he was walking through the city, that there be those murmuring to the sides. Well, that's no holy man of God. So who is he to put on the priest's garments? God has shown us his heart. Surely there, there, there's wickedness and there is sin in Zachariah's heart and God's not allowing him to have a child as a result. Who is he to go before God on our behalf? And then Elizabeth, perhaps there would be days when she would be in the market. She'd be there purchasing some goods for her family and maybe she would hear the murmurings as well. Those women as she walked by, perhaps those women surrounded by their children, two and three and four and five and six of them, and as they did, maybe they said where she could hear, oh, God has shown His favor to us. Look at the way God has blessed our family. Woe to those who are barren. Surely God is punishing Elizabeth for a reason. And yet, what does Luke tell us here? He doesn't say that, that Elizabeth and Zechariah were barren because of their sin. Actually, he says they were righteous before God. They walked blamelessly. That They followed the commandment of God. And imagine how difficult this must have been for them in a situation where God seemed so silent to them. Where so often they must have cried out to Him for a child. And the answer was silence. And so they waited. We are a people who don't like to wait very much, do we? Some of us don't want to wait to be held. <laughs> but, but other of us, we, we struggle with waiting, don't we? It's not just a stoplight now, it's a stop sign. It's... <laughs> We don't want to wait for anything. It seems like there's always got to be a a faster way, a a newer way. We're we're this microwave culture. And we want everything right now, don't we? But but can you think about a time where you've just had to wait for something? I mean, I think about Christmas time. Uh, When I was a child, uh, Christmas... December 25th, that that was on my mind and on my calendar. And the gifts would come out often before then, and they'd be wrapped. And I knew, well, I've got to wait till the 25th. Now, I did everything I could to inspect those things and shake them. And I can remember actually getting on scales, holding them, and trying to figure out. Now, kids, you won't understand this today, but but many, many years ago in a land far, far away, we used to get this toy catalog in the mail. And so I'd flip through that thing, and I'd look through it, and then, then you had to wait. In fact, I remember being at a friend's house once, and his parents weren't home, and this was two weeks before Christmas, and he just opened his gifts up. And then he real carefully was putting the paper back on them and taping them back up, and I thought, well, I didn't even know that was an option. You know? <laughs> you know, even then, I struggled with Waiting. But, but as a child at Christmas time, we, we do that, that's just part of it, because there's this day when everything's revealed, that there's this day when you don't have to wait anymore. In fact, there's this countdown towards less waiting. But then there's times like this when there's no date circled on the calendar. There's times like what we see here for Zachariah and Elizabeth, where they waited and they waited. And they waited. And Christmas morning never came. And there's times like that in our lives too, aren't there? How do you respond when you have to wait on God? If we struggle to wait on stoplights, well, what is it like to wait on God? What, What is it like when when God's timing is radically different than our timing? Well, what is it like when we seek to walk by faith and do the things God says and obey the Word, and yet we wait and we wait and we wait? It's in those times that we need to remember that God's timing is not ours. That God keeps His promises in His timing. not in ours that there's a great book that i encourage you to read during this advent season it's called hidden christmas by tim keller this is what keller says about this waiting he says you cannot judge god by your calendar god may appear to be slow but he never forgets his promises God may seem to be working very slowly or even to be forgetting His promises, but when His promises come true, and they will come true, they always burst the banks of what you imagined. And so we come to this text now where Zechariah he goes into the temple never imagining that after 400 years of silence this would be a word from God. And not just that. But but this Word would be an answer to His prayer. This brings us to that second point there in your outline. We see in this text a reminder that God answers prayer in His timing, not in ours. And so we see here, Zechariah, he is going into the temple. Now, just a little background on this from our study in Exodus. You'll remember there in Exodus as we were studying the tabernacle. That, that tent of meeting, which would essentially be the blueprint for, for the temple that would come later. This is King Herod's temple that Zachariah is going into. And how you had the, this perimeter, and you had all this activity going on outside. And then there at that tabernacle, as well as the temple, you had going into it the priest. And there was the holy place, and then there was a separation, and then there was the most holy place. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where the high Priest would go in once a year on behalf of the people on the Day of Atonement. And so what you have Zechariah doing here is he's been chosen. Many priests never got to do this, but he, he's been chosen to go into the holy place to light that altar of incense. It served a very practical purpose. All the sacrifices that took place, you can imagine the stench of that. And you had this this altar burning incense and this pleasing aroma would come from it. And it would fill not only the holy place, it would fill the most holy place. And so this altar for God's people was associated with the presence of God. And so as Zechariah goes in, he... He sees there the altar of incense. Perhaps there's already smoke in the room. Perhaps it's through that smoke he begins to make his way towards it. And all of a sudden, there's something he never, never imagined he would see. An angel from the Lord. That, that messenger Gabriel, he says to him there, we read in verse 13, Do not be afraid, Zachariah, for your prayer has been heard. And just those words, your prayer has been heard. Perhaps in that moment, Zachariah is going through all the things he's been praying for and all the things about God's people. Perhaps he's thinking about the long way to Messiah. Perhaps he's thinking about just trivial issues of his day. But the angel tells him what prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. Imagine how often Zechariah had prayed for a son. And we see in God's word here that not only were Zechariah and Elizabeth barren, we see that they were both advanced in years. And so I would imagine for them, there were probably seasons of their life where they just cried and poured out before the Lord, Lord, please give us a child, please give us a child, Lord, please give us a child. And it was silence. There was no answer. perhaps now they got into a place in their life where they really didn't pray for that anymore because because that season was gone. That they were well on in years. It seemed that God had said to them definitively no to their request. But we see in prayer that it is answered in God's timing and not in ours. And that's what Zachariah soon learns. Is he's told that he would have this son. And not only just any son, that this son would be special. He would prepare the way of the Lord. He would be a forerunner for the Messiah. All those years Zechariah prayed and there seemed to be no answer. And now this. And yet during that time we see he was faithful. Friend, how do you respond when God doesn't answer your prayers? How do you respond? I'm not saying, you know, the... You you, you prayed for a a parking space at the outlet mall and you didn't get it. I'm talking about you you just prayed fervently over and over and over and over and over and over over again. And your prayers were met with silence. How do you respond? You for some were tempted in those moments to give up. For some, were tempted in those moments to, to take control. I mean, after all, what is it that we hear people say? God helps those who help themselves. So, so maybe I just need to help myself a little bit more, and then God will kick in there later on. We're tempted to do things in our own effort, in our own strength, in our own timing. And yet we're reminded here from God's Word that, that God answers prayers in His timing and not in ours. There are certainly times when God doesn't answer prayer or the answer is no very clearly because we're praying for the wrong things. We're praying for wicked things. God's not going to give us wrong things. He's not going to give us wicked things. And that's what James points out in James 4. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passion. Sometimes in our foolish and our ignorance, we're praying for things that are completely contrary to the revealed will of God. God's not going to give us those things. But what about those things we pray for that that aren't wrong? What about those things we pray for that aren't wicked? When we pray for our loved one to get better. when we pray for the salvation of a friend or a family member. When we pray for our child. And it seems in those times that there's just silence. This text reminds us, friend, that God will indeed answer us. But He will answer us in His timing and not in ours. I love it as one pastor, Legan Duncan, said, he said, prayers are not rejected just because God's answers are delayed. And there's no delay in God's side of the economy, but on our side, that's exactly how it feels. But that does not mean we've been rejected. There's another pastor said, he may not come when you want him, but he's always on time. And we're reminded in Luke chapter 1 as God bursts forth into history here that he is always on time. This brings us to this third and final point this morning, this Advent season. It reminds us to trust in God's timing and not in ours. And so notice here Zechariah's response. <laughs> God sends an angel. There's silence for 400 years. The angel tells him exactly what's going to happen. You're you're going to have a child. Your wife's going to have a child. And this is how God's going to use that child. And Zechariah's response, this one who was faithful, who was righteous, who obeyed God, verse 18, his response is, well, how should I know that? (laughs) I mean, just think about that for a second. I'm not sure that angels from God have a sense of humor, but I like to think I do. So I, I can imagine if I'm in Gabriel's shoes here yeah. and Zechariah says, well, how should I know? Well, I don't know, Zachariah. Maybe God should send you a messenger from heaven. You know? Maybe he should break 400 years of silence and send you a messenger who will tell you exactly what's going to happen. Maybe then you would know, Zachariah. Even as I say that, though, I think about how often do we question God about things that He's already told us in His Word so clearly. I've sat down with so many people as a pastor who wrestled with this notion that you could have security in your salvation. And so I'll point out what God's Word says. Actually, First John it says real clearly, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So you can know you have eternal life. How do you know that? Because you have confessed Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. And you walk by faith, not by sight. And you repent and you trust in Him. And the Word says, then we can know we have eternal life. And then we say, what? Well, how do I know? How can I be sure? God's told us in His Word. God told Zechariah so clearly in His Word. And He reminds us here that His timing is perfect. And that we need to trust in His timing. And so Zechariah here, he he doesn't believe. He seems to doubt. He doesn't have faith. He says, as a reminder, if Gabriel needs to know, well, Gabriel, I'm an old man and my wife's advanced in years. Maybe you got the wrong priest. There's a younger guy coming in after him. Maybe that's who you meant to come talk to. Gabriel, no, he says, this is the plan of God. And so as a result, Zechariah would be mute until John was born. That was certainly, the Scripture tells us, a consequence of his unbelief. I think also it was probably for his benefit that there are times I would have fared better had I been mute. (laughs) Had I been unable to speak, you know, you you want to get those words back at times. Zachariah has given a consequence; he's also given a gift. He he just has to rely on God and walk by faith now. And wait. To wait on God's perfect timing, and so this this passage closes with a reminder of that perfect timing. It says, after these days his wife Elizabeth conceived and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when He looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. He takes away her shame. He gives her a child. And that child would play a crucial role in salvation history as he would give testimony That Jesus indeed was the Messiah. That child would grow to be a man. And that man would baptize the Messiah. He he would herald the Messiah. He, He would tell everyone, Jesus indeed is the Messiah. Not just on the banks of the Jordan River. He would do that while he was in his mother's womb. And we'll look there next Lord's Day. But for now, I want us to consider this text as we prepare to come to the Lord's table together with this question. Are you trusting in God today? Are you trusting in God's timing today? Are you trusting in the plan of God? Are you holding tightly with clenched fists onto things you can control? Perhaps God is reminding you, perhaps He's reminding all of us from this text that, that we need to let go of that grasp. And that we need to trust in Him. That we need to remember that He has a plan. And friends, that plan didn't end with the cross. And that plan didn't end with the empty tomb. See, just like God rescued His people from slavery in Egypt and took them on a journey to the land of promise, we are on a journey today to a promised land as well. We light a candle remembering those who for generations anticipated the coming of Christ and we light it today anticipating the second coming of Christ. And we look toward the day when there's no more suffering and no more pain and no more death and Christ makes all things new. And in the days that seem silent, in the days when it seems God doesn't answer us, when we become weary... And when we struggle to believe, we look to Luke chapter 1, and we receive hope that God may not come when we want Him to, but He always comes on time. And that's exactly what we're reminded of when we come to the Lord's table together. And so we're going to transition to that time now. I want to invite our deacons to come forward, and as they do... I just want to remind you, this is an opportunity for everyone here who's a confessing follower of Jesus Christ. So if you've confessed Jesus as Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, if you've publicly made that confession, we invite you to participate in the Lord's Supper with us today. If you've yet to make that confession, we invite you just to observe as we who have made that confession partake in the Lord's Supper together. And we begin that with the bread. We've learned a bit about this bread as we've studied through the book of Exodus. As we've seen that God gave His people a feast of unleavened bread that they were to commemorate as a time when they remembered how God delivered them from Egypt. And what God did there was so quick when God burst forth into salvation history, He did it so quickly that they didn't have time for the bread to rise. In our common vernacular, you might say that there wasn't time to preheat the oven. It was time to go and God delivered them. And so Jesus and His disciples that they gathered together before His crucifixion, they had this Passover meal, That this unleavened bread, this reminder, that when God chooses to act, He acts swiftly. He's a deliverer of His people. And friend, He will not leave us. He will indeed return for us. And when He does, it will be swift. And so we long for and look towards that day. So in just a moment, the deacons are going to pass out the bread. If you would hold on to this, I'm going to read Scripture and pray for us. Then we're going to receive it together. But as you hold on to it, as we sing, be prayerful. God's Word says we're not to to take this casually. We're we're to be a repentant people. We're, We're to go before Him in these moments and to repent and turn from sin. It doesn't mean we have to be perfect people to take the Lord's Supper. But we need to be people trusting in a perfect Savior. And so if there's any area of your life where that trust is not there, confess that, repent of that, and prepare to receive this bread with us. records the events that took place at that last supper in First Corinthians 11 where we read this Paul writes for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me father we thank you in Jesus name for this bread and this reminder that when you move when you enter into salvation history. When you work in your perfect plan and your perfect timing, Lord, you deliver your people and you do it swiftly. So, Father, help us to trust in your provision. Help us to trust in Christ today as we receive this bread. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 11 to write about how after taking the bread with the disciples, Jesus took the cup. He said this cup would stand then for the rest of salvation history as a reminder to God's people. A reminder of the new covenant made in His blood. And so friends, this morning, as we prepare to receive this cup together, let's remember that it is by the blood of Christ that we are saved. There is no room in this cup for your works this morning. This cup represents the finished work of Jesus Christ our Lord on the cross. It is by His wounds, the Scripture says, that we are healed and we are saved. So let's trust in Him as we prepare. Again, the deacons will distribute the cups if you'll hold on to those. And I'll read the Scripture and pray for us and we'll receive it together. As we continue reading in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul reminds us that after taking the bread, Jesus took the cup and said, this is a reminder. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you reclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you that not only has Jesus come, but He will be coming again. And as we take this cup, Lord, help us to remember to be a people who have faith, who trust in the finished work of Jesus, who long for the day of His return, and who proclaim that death to others, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Father, we thank You for this time that we've had to remember through the Lord's Supper, to remember through Your Word, We pray, God, that we would be a people who would share the message of the gospel with others. And we pray for this in Christ's name. Amen. Church family, if you would stand as the deacons return to their seats and as we prepare to sing once more. Before we sing and close our service today, I do want us to pray for a few families. We've had a lot of loss in our church family and our community this week. And so you'll notice on the back of your worship guide there, We want to pray for the family of Bill Thompson, for Miss Lil, for their children Ellen and Billy. We want to pray for the family of Shirley Martin, for Roy and Jackie Drake, for Lex and Martha Martin, for Greg and Carolyn. And we want to pray today for the family of Roddy Wright, for A.G. and Gene Wright, for Tina and Larry and Craig and Lonnie. And so let's lift these families up and pray for them now. Father God, we do come to You praying for these families that You would give them peace and give them comfort. Lord, reminded of Your Word that we read that there is a day in the book of Revelation where, where there's no more tears, no more mourning, where there's no more death, a day when Jesus says, I'm making all things new. And so we pray for them, Lord, that You, they, that you would set their hopes and set our hope on eternity today. We pray, God, that we would be a people who even in the midst of our Grief and our sorrow can sing of the great joy of the gospel because it is the joy of the gospel that truly gives us hope in this life and in our death. And this is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.